Arts have the ability to just change the narrative, to just change the story, to change our fundamental relationships to things. And I think we need a fundamental reset of our relationship to nature. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter, and this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is the underwater photographer and sculptor, Jason DeCaris-Taylor. Jason's sculptures aren't like anything you've probably ever seen before. You won't find them in a town square, a famous high street, or the offices of a high-flying corporate skyscraper. Instead, you'll find them submerged into the ocean, where they act as artificial reefs and become habitats for marine life, helping underwater creatures and plants to thrive. His sculptures also contain personal messages that tell stories on a local, national and global scale touching upon issues from oceanic plastic pollution to rising sea levels. They also draw people to the regions they inhabit, often boosting local economies and upping national conservation protection to these surrounding areas. Jason first gained international attention in 2006, with the creation of the world's first underwater sculpture park, situated off the west coast of Grenada in the West Indies. Now listed as one of the top 25 wonders of the world by National Geographic, the park was instrumental in the government declaring the site a national marine protected area. Since then, his permanent site-specific works have spanned several continents, from the shores of Cancun to the waters of Norway and to the depths of the Great Barrier Reef. Jason's work has been featured in pretty much every single major publication across the globe and has received numerous awards along the way. He's also a member of the Royal Society of Sculptors, a featured TED speaker, and in 2014 was awarded the Global Thinker by Foreign Policy. If you'd like to check out some of Jason's work before listening to our interview, we have a few links in the show description, which will take you straight to the web pages of some of the projects we speak about in this episode. And so without further ado, here's our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So I wanted to start at the beginning with what drew you to art, and how did art become something you wanted to commit your life towards? Um, well, it certainly wasn't an instantaneous uh, a decision to, to go into being a professional artist. It was something that, that evolved over many years. I went to art college after after leaving school and I spent quite a few years, you know, experimenting with different mediums and techniques. And, and then afterwards, I became quite concerned about actually finding work. So I went off and actually did quite a few sort of different jobs. Uh, did a lot of traveling, worked for a stage company, a photographic company, a diving company, and did lots of different professions. It was only sort of later on when I was in my 30s um, that I sort of uh, got back into sculpting and, and maybe sort of saw a career in it before I never really saw it. And so I've been reading a lot about your work and a bit about your journey. And at art school, I read that you were very influenced by the land art and the earthwork movements that were happening when you were an art student in the early 90s. How come you were influenced by these movements and why did they attract you? I mean, I spent most of my teens as a, as a graffiti artist <laughs> and yeah, I spent a long time sort of <laughs> being outdoors, spray painting trains and warehouses. And Back in those days, there was tons of derelict buildings and places to explore. And I spent a lot of time doing that. So 
I don't know if that sort of uh, made me look differently at art or made me you know, think about it outside of the gallery space. But as soon as I entered art college, I was quite lucky. I had sort of tutors that were very forward thinking and, and quite sort of unconventional in their approach to, to sculpture. And so there's there certain things we weren't allowed to use a desk ever. You weren't allowed to produce anything at desk height. They just gave you an empty room. So instantly you started thinking about installations rather than objects. And I think it was just from that, it was just part of the study. And I did a lot of work outdoors. I used to take all my sculptures outside of the art college and take them on tours around England, photographing them in, in different spaces. And yeah, kind of that's how I sort of, yeah, I suppose got into it. And, and I think it was when I started thinking about art and its functionality when I started to sort of move these pieces around and they created huge logistical problems for me. I was in London and, you know, I'd be making these installations outdoors and, and filling up galleries and then I'd have to take them all, all apart and bring them home. And I just lived in a, in a in a shared house and it was a bit of a nightmare. So I really started to think, you know, unless I sell the work, it's got to have another function. And so I think that sort of started me thinking about you know, art having a secondary purpose. And so what were your first installations and sculptures like at art school and in your in your 20s? I mean, a lot of it was just experimenting, like everyone does, I suppose, at our college. You know, we went through phases and I did a lot of ceramics, uh, a lot of uh, concrete casting, uh, a lot of welding. I think for my show, I did a, a very figurative piece. I, I did lots of multiple casts of people, uh, which obviously is, is, is quite similar to some of the work I do now. But yeah, it was, you know, I look back on it and it was such an amazing experience. And, you know, I really maybe took it for granted at the time and didn't get the most out of it. And I, I wish I could go back and study again because it was amazing, really. You know, you just have three years to experiment with, you know, all these incredible materials and, and work in an environment with other artists. It was you know, looking back on it, it was a real privilege. And I was still at the age where um, my fees were covered. So I look back on it sometimes with a little bit of regret now. And so what was your, your first underwater work? So it's your underwater sculptures that you're, you're really well known for. When did underwater sculptures begin to be a, a focus for you? Um, so quite, quite some time afterwards, really. When I was at art college, I was looking at sort of art and context and how it relates to the landscape. And, and I actually thought about doing an, under, an underwater installation around that time. But, you know, living in the UK and uh, having no, no budget whatsoever, it was, it was never really going to be feasible. But then later on in life, I think in 2006, I was working in the island of, of Grenada in the Caribbean. And then I sort of thought, oh, this could be a good idea, a good, a good opportunity to, to create an, an underwater installation, which also had a practical purpose. There'd, there'd been a very strong hurricane there that had decimated a lot of the coastline. And one of the, the bays had been particularly, particularly damaged. And what that meant is a lot of tourists who visited were just heading to these last few remaining pristine sites and causing a lot of degradation of the, of the coral reef. So I was sort of working with a dive company and I hatched this plan that if you could create a diversion, create something in this area that had been uh, decimated by the hurricane, you know, not only would it sort of create new life, but it would also draw these tourists away from the fragile sites. And it just felt like, A, just a really good practical 
solution to a problem, um, but also another opportunity for me to, you know, explore the underwater world. You know, you know, very, very few artists have, have had that opportunity and two thirds of our planet is water. And, and yeah, it's so sort of uh, little understood. And so that this um, this project that you've just mentioned in Granada in 2006, it's, it's actually turned into the, the world's first underwater sculpture park. I read it was listed as one of the top 25 wonders of the world. It sounds like a great story. So how did it unfold? What was it like when it became one of the 25 wonders of the world? <laughs> um, I think that, the, yeah, that title is probably a little bit uh, <laughs> over-egging it. I've seen some of the other, you know, contenders, and I think I saw the, yeah, the Himalayas and Mount Everest and Niagara Falls and a few others. It is amazing, though. It is an amazing project. Yes, yeah. To be, to be honest, I went into it with absolutely no expectation. So I sort of reached a point where in my life where I tried lots of different things. I, I think I'd become sort of frustrated with this idea, you know, of predetermined career. And I just got to a stage where I just thought, right, I'm just going to do something that I really want to do. And I've got no expectation that it's going to work. Um, but I know it's going to be interesting to do. And I kind of put aside a year and I just thought, I'm going to try this for a year. And if it doesn't work, uh, it doesn't matter. It's just it's just an experience. And so, yeah, it started, I you know made, I think, 16 sculptures to start off with, you know, and it was just a huge learning curve, learning how, what materials work underwater, what species will colonize it, how to document the work, how to photograph the work underwater. And it just went in stages, you know, each, each, month I started on a new piece for the sculpture park and I think you know within a couple of years I got up to sort of 60 65 works and you know I, th- I think I was lucky it sort of was at the same time as when the internet was really starting to explode and, and social media was really starting to sort of uh, take over and so you know I had really good dissemination of the of the images and, and, the, and the video from from an early point and if I probably started it 10 years earlier it would have been a very different thing so yeah it just sort of evolved from there and so these these sculptures they essentially create artificial reefs can you tell me a bit about how they they create this and what are the functionalities your sculptures need in order to ensure this is the case so yes yeah like I say it's been a sort of a steep learning curve um all the materials, are, uh, all the sculptures are made from inert materials that don't change their properties underwater. They have textures and surface areas that allow coral polyps and different types of marine flora to actually attach to it. Um, they also have habitat areas built into them, so certain species can, you know, hide inside and evade predation. Uh, and they're also designed so that they're not moved by strong currents or hurricanes or, or tropical weather patterns. And they also help with the sort of movement of, of tourism, like of tourists, like, like I mentioned earlier. So there's several different things going on there. And um, each year I've tried to sort of look at a new technique or a new style or try it out something else that, that I think will be interesting. What's the, the last new style or technique that you've worked out or, or incorporated into your, into your work? Um, I mean, the last, last well, the several projects I've been working on uh, in Australia have been doing more sort of buildings underwater. So at the beginning, it was, it was sort of singular figurative works. Now there's more sort of uh, architectural forms, uh, much larger in scale. Than, I think the, the recent one was up 12 metres tall, and they work on, on aggregating marine life in it on a much sort of larger scale. I'm currently working on a project in Cyprus where we're building an, an underwater forest. It's sort of big, multiple uh, organic forms that, you know, designed to sort of create these sort of, you know, almost underwater farms of marine life. 
so does the the usual process or the creative process of each of your projects does it differ a lot from project to project um no it changes changes quite a bit you know i am kind of always thinking of new ideas and and new ways of working so they, they do change it can be quite frustrating to the people who work with me because we sort of get into a routine but we quite often sort of uh, yeah look for something new um, but it, it all depends on, on the country that you know the project is based and yeah there, there's very very di- it's very different working on a sort of remote atoll in the Indian Ocean to, to working on the south coast of France it, there is a lot of differences in the logistics available and the materials available and, and the skills that are there as well so yeah i do try and tailor them to each place um and yeah yeah it works out well and so do you have to work with a lot of experts from a lot of different backgrounds in order to make these projects a reality considering the scope of these works yes definitely you know there's this series of marine engineers uh, marine biologists involved there's all sorts of consultants that uh, local consultants that help with the permitting uh, process at each destination we try to um, also implement um, studies in each place by a local group of marine uh, biologists in each in each destination to actually monitor how the sculptures are changing and, and uh, you know how they're fitting into the, the marine landscape. And I'm um, I'm interested to learn a bit more about the material that you use for your sculptures. So I read that they're a high density pH neutral marine cement. Is this the material you've been using since you've started working on these projects? What led you to this material, and why is it the best material for these sculptures? Um, so yeah, I've looked looked at lots of different uh, materials out, uh, since since I first began. Uh, most public sculpture tends to be a metal uh, or some kind of uh, foundation casting or metal armature and though metals don't work particularly well or ferrous metals don't work particularly well underwater because obviously they corrode and break down and the idea of, of making a reef is that you're making something that's going to be there for hundreds of years to allow all the different you know, species to, to grow um, so it's about finding materials that emulate rock formations basically and you could i've looked at lots of different natural rocks um which work very well but they're not very cost effective and they're not very environmentally friendly in the process of of you know mining and quarrying rocks so cement is the is the sort of best material for making things on a larger scale and you can put additives in it to to make it ph neutral um, and to change its properties so that it's much more resilient and doesn't cause any pollution when you install it i'm still looking at different recipes because obviously the manufacture of cement is quite carbon intensive um, and so at the moment i'm trying to look at these new cements green cement um, which have a much lower carbon footprint but yes yeah, it's basically trying to make sculptures out of inert materials that don't don't change underwater and how do you optimize the the sculptures for each location that they're in so your sculptures are in different regions of oceans and waters across the world and all of these regions have different properties maybe the water's the different temperature or there's different oceanic life and how do you optimize the sculptures for each location uh, certainly you know the temperatures change i was working on two scu- two sculptures at the same time one in the in the maldives and one in in oslo and one was a frozen fjord and it was minus 40 uh, on the surface in the, with the wind and then one was plus 40 so i was traveling between two projects that had an 80 celsius uh, uh, temperature difference but to be honest that that doesn't actually affect the materials too much it's more uh, the marine life that's that's down there that affects it and which 
some species actually bur- burrow into the into the surface of the material, and some others just colonise on, on on the surface. It doesn't actually make too much of a difference in either location. Um, it's more what type of creatures are going to to inhabit the sculpture. So in some more tropical areas, there'll be lots of sea urchins, and I quite like sea urchins because they perform this service where they actually eat a lot of the the harmful algae that grows on the sculptures. So if you incorporate hiding spaces for sea urchins, they actually hide in them during the day and then at night they come out and actually graze on all the algae and and clean the surface and that allows coral polyps to, to settle and to and to start start growing. You know, other other cold water environments, we had mussels growing, and so they, it's more interesting to put those in an area where there was a current, where they were closer to the surface, um, and they, they performed a different task, as it were. But also, you know, a lot of it, I'd like to say that you know I have it all, you know, completely worked out and calculated, and, and that's not the case. You know, a sculpture can change whether it's ten meters from the shore, fifty meters from the shore, whether there's a slight current, whether there's a particularly warm summer. There's, there's so many variables. Most uh, embryonic life in the sea rains down in this sort of like drift of snow, and it just just you know is chance where that object is and whether it comes into contact with that embryonic life form of whether you know something will grow on it. So there is a there's a huge element of of luck involved. Mm. And it's part of the the beauty of the sculptures that you don't know how they are going to react in the water sometimes. And I've read how you've you've revisited these works and they look different each time you you go into the water and look at them. Oh, completely different. I mean, even in this you know space of one year, you know, it, it can utterly transform the, the same piece. And and depending on whether you think it's good or bad, you know, I've gone there some days and everything's covered in a black kind of algae sludge. <laughs> Um, and I can't see anything. And I go back six weeks later and, and it's covered in an iridescent purple sponge. You know, it, it really goes through all these stages because things eat what grows on them. Uh, tides, you know, or strong weather weather patterns actually remove algae or, or, or stir up the sediment. And, uh, yeah, it's such a sort of uh, dynamic and changeable space. And so how regularly do you revisit these these works? Are you talking uh, uh, pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? Uh, um, let's say let's say pre-pre-pandemic. Back in back when life was a bit more normal. <laughs> Quite a lot, uh, yeah. When I first started off, I was really obviously I only had one or two projects, and I was very very sort of uh, fastidious about you know visiting and documenting and seeing. I would map out you know square quadrants and see how many different uh, species were in each quadrant and but now I'm approaching a sort of thousand sculptures in different parts of the world it's much much harder to to see how they're changing um, and it's kind of the thing I miss the most when I was working on the project in Mexico you know I was there for almost four or five years and you know I got to go at least every month to to see how they were and it was yeah fantastic seeing all those changes and I get quite frustrated now, you know, in, being in the UK in, in, in lockdown because I see you know, images of them on, on Instagram and on social media. And, you know, and I just get a glimpse of this fantastic formation. And I'm just so frustrated that, you know, I can't can't go and uh, photograph it. <laughs> and have there been when you've revisited some of these sites, has, have you ever seen any of the negative consequences of global warming and climate change when you've revisited these sites? Has there been anything that's kind of stuck out to you well yeah i mean certainly you know i've done some coral propagation ones where we've actually implanted 
lots of coral onto the surfaces. And we did a big, big project in Mexico with that. And they, and they, they were growing fantastically well. Uh, but then there was just one one summer where they, they had a really sort of uh, high El Nino year and it was it was really hot and, and they all died and you know, everything got bleached and, and died um, and they don't come back. You know, they just get covered in algae and, uh, and turn to sludge. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't like to jump to massive conclusions. It could have just been, uh, you know, one-off event. I mean, it could have been, you know, a, a sustained change in, in temperature. I'm not, I'm, it's hard for me to tell. But certainly everywhere I go and, and a lot of marine biologists I speak to um, have all noticed massive changes and and extremely, you know, worried about the future of, of our reefs. Mm. I'm interested to learn a bit more about, there's a few projects that you've done fairly recently. There's actually one I know that you completed in early February of this year in Cannes. But I wanted to, before we speak about that project, I wanted to ask you a bit about the coal greenhouse and the series of sculptures that you made uh, for this project in Australia, which was across the Great Barrier Reef. And I just wanted to know the, the inspiration behind this project and how and why did it come about? That, that particular project, you know, I think it's been in the planning stages or we've been working on it for, you know, I think two or three years now. We installed the first sculpture at the end of 2019 um, and I was meant to go back and and, uh, and carry on working on it. And obviously that, 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 hasn't, that didn't transpire in 2020. But... Yeah, the idea, I mean, you know, the Great Barrier Reef is, is, is in one of the most sort of effective places by, by climate change. Large areas of, of the northern, you know, northern reef sections have, have seen, you know, huge, huge bleaching events. And part of the project was that we didn't want to uh, entirely focus on, on that, on that negative aspect. Obviously, it's, it's a really bad thing that, that's, that's happening and, you know, Fixing climate change is not a, an easy solution. It requires a sort of a worldwide response. But we wanted to do a project to, to show that actually, you know, two thirds of the reef, I think a bit, a bit more, is actually still in in fantastic shape and, and still has some of the best corals in the world. And so we wanted to kind of draw attention to that fact and to bring more people out to to, to witness it and engage more people in in marine conservation. You know, that I think you know a lot of people take it for granted you know how fantastic the reefs are but you know it's, it's a lot harder trying to sort of continue the the messaging about how they're they're imperiled um so i came up with this concept to do a, a greenhouse um and to kind of create corals on a, on a very large scale um that could be sort of harvested in this greenhouse and then uh, planted out onto onto natural sites and yes, it was a, it was a big architectural piece. I think twelve meters high, uh, features around uh, thirty sculptures inside, and it's part of several different phases. So uh, there's also a sculpture that goes with it called Ocean Siren, and that's a, a coastal sculpture that changes color according to um, what temperature the, the reefs are, what, what, what temperature the Great Barrier Reef is. And then I'm currently working on uh, phase three and four of the project, which is. Uh, secondary installations on uh, adjacent islands, so in Palm Island and Magnetic Island, and the idea is it's sort of uh, four separate sites that that create this large tour of the region. So when visitors uh, go to that part of Queensland, they actually get to visit all these different sites: coastal sites, outer reef sites, and also fringing reef areas. Yeah, I actually had a, a question about Ocean Siren because it's a beautiful, it's a really beautiful sculpture, and it's really interesting how it changes color. How how did you how did you make it change color in real time to reflect the ocean temperatures? 
How does it work? <laughs> um, well, that, that particular area of Australia, Townsville, um, has some of the biggest uh, marine universities and institutions in the world, and some of the leading, uh, you know, marine biologists in the world uh, work there. So I was very, very lucky that you know there was it was an amazing resource of, of information. And I actually worked with one of the institutes uh, called AIMS, Australian Institute of Marine Science. And they actually have monitoring stations out on the Great Barrier Reef that are constantly collecting data. They have, you know, temperature data, salinity data, uh, webcams, a whole sort of plethora of information. And they're able from that weather station to relay that information back to the back to the coast. And then from there, there's a, a, a wireless router that, uh, then sends that information to the ocean siren so that it changes. And obviously temperature changes is not a sort of obvious pattern. Corals don't bleach just because there's one hot day. Corals bleach because there's a, a sustained period of warm seas. And so we've had to sort of work in a program that reflects that on the siren so that if there is a sustained period of of high temperatures, then uh, she will actually glow red and, and act as a kind of warning sign that corals could be in trouble. And that's quite, quite, I think, quite an important thing, especially there in Australia, where you know the Great Barrier Reef is, is almost four hours in a boat from the coast. So I kind of wanted to bring into an urban environment what was happening in real time, you know, out and out at, out at sea. It's beautiful, a beautiful sculpture. And I'm interested to learn more about your most recent project or that you've just completed in Cannes, a series of sculptures off the, the coast of Cannes, which were, I read, were designed to preserve the surrounding seagrass meadows. And similar question, what was the inspiration behind it and how did it happen and why? Yes, I mean, so... I think that's taken a few years as well to, uh, you know, to, to implement the full project. I was contacted, I think, 2016 um, to go and have a have a look at the site and uh, was sort of commissioned by the, the mayor of Cannes uh, to produce this sort of underwater museum. And it's interesting, you know, I'm very excited by different marine spaces. You know, I didn't want to just be sort of working in tropical environments and, and just dealing with coral reefs. I wanted to use my work to, you know, draw attention to lots of different areas, you know, all around the world that I think we tend to think of marine life as, you know, huge pelagic creatures and, and you know, dense tropical reefs where, where in fact, you know, there's incredible marine lives in all our underwater areas. In the British Isles, we have, you know, uh, incredible species. And, and, and again, in the Mediterranean, there is these incredible habitat spaces. So that particular project, you know, I wanted to do something that works with these seagrass meadows that was more of a way of creating a, a marine reserve there to stop people anchoring on the sculptures, uh, on the sea uh, seagrass. Uh, and we also did a, an underwater clear-up. So where the sculptures were installed was an area where there was lots of sort of disused marine infrastructure, old boat engines and pipes and cables and and so we did a big sort of clean up, cleaned all the seabed and then used the areas of sand to place the sculptures. And then we extended the no anchoring zone along that, that area of the coastline to stop people putting their anchors on the seagrass. And it was a, it was a different project for me because they were extremely shallow. You know, it's the first time I'd worked in the Mediterranean and these pieces are only kind of a metre beneath the water. Um, so they're really, really accessible, only 
20 or 30 meters from the shore. And it was interesting because actually some of the best, clearest water I've ever worked in around the world. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds amazing. And the pictures of that project too are, are great. Just like all of your work <laughs> that, that, that I come across, sort of uh, it all looks great. And the, the benefits of these works transpire in so many different ways. And you've touched upon it a little bit about tourism, the economic benefits and obviously the environmental benefits of these works. And I'm interested to hear a bit bit more about these benefits, how they transpire, and also are there, what are the most important benefits to you when you go down to create a work? Do you have like a hierarchy of benefits you'd like to achieve? What are the most important things for you? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different things. You know, I, obviously, uh, with the actual content, the, the the meaning of the sculptures, I try to highlight an important uh, conservation message within the narrative of the pieces, and that can be a whole range of different things, from sort of uh, warning of a fossil fuel use to just us inherently being part of nature. So there's a lot of messaging that goes on. There's also, which I sort of over the years, I think I've realised are some of the sort of bigger benefits is changing how people interact with the sea. So using the the works to create marine parks or marine reserves, which in turn, uh, you know, really sort of has much bigger implications for the coastline. In Grenada, the first project I started, over time that that area became a a marine reserve and some of the entrance fees that people paid to go and see the sculptors helped fund a a marine ranger programme. And I think that had much greater benefit than creating an artificial reef that has, you know, it has some impact, but on, on quite a small scale. Whereas I felt that that was a much more, uh, you know, beneficial thing is is creating these reserves, but also changing the public's relationship to the sea, that it that it's, it's not all out of sight and out of mind. It's actually an incredibly fragile and beautiful ecosystem that, that we often forget about. And I quite often think of the analogy between you know a sort of you know a nature park or 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 a safe you know an ancient forest you know if we if we had an ancient forest in in the uk and everybody went in there killing all the animals and pulling them out and and discarding every all our disused items into this into this ancient forest we wouldn't stand for it and we we would be up you know up in arms Whereas we do that all the time to our ocean environment, there's just as many species and it's just as as precious. Um, we haven't we haven't moved our mentality on, and I kind of hope that my work can help change that. And do you think it's on a emotional level that really gets the best results when you're trying to influence the way people behave towards the sea and the the conservation efforts that happen as a result of your work? I think we've sort of seen, you know, <laughs> in very sort of uh, dramatic terms over the last few few or decade or so, how, you know, we have all these statistics, we have all these amazing studies and all this incredible amount of information that when you look at, you know, really, really serious implications. But I don't think as humans, we we always have the ability to, to react to it or to empathize with it or to to, re- to really engage and, and, and understand it and I think that's because we're emotional beings and we you know we, we you can see with all the the arguments in England over brexit and uh, and the economy and all these different arguments they're, they're not they're not people aren't moved by facts and figures they're just moved by feelings and 
I think you know artists play a huge role in, in in shaping those feelings. And I think if you you know you look at you know history, how you know different uh, civilizations you know moved people, and and it was it was through art. And I think we've tend to have forgotten that. So the so the arts are uniquely placed in a way to achieve things on an environmental front that perhaps science alone cannot. Definitely, definitely, and I think. You know, that was one of the big motivations for the, the Ocean Siren piece in, in Australia. You know, they, we had a, they had all this amazing data, but, you know, how can you wake people up and show them, what, what it, you know, ring a siren to, to let them know how, how bad things are? Do you think there's, on a more general level, do you think, what are the best ways do you think the arts can help create a sustainable future? Are there any, what are some things that art institutions or artists should or can look to do to, to help create a more sustainable future for this planet and engage people in the environmental sphere? Arts have the ability to just change the narrative, to just change the story, to change our fundamental relationships to things. And I think we need a fundamental reset of our relationship to nature. You know, we we have, we cannot think as animals as just a food source. We can't think of <laughs> as trees as just a material. You know, we have we have to understand that we're natural beings, that our, our life and death depends on our environment around us. And and I think the signs are encouraging. I think, I think you know, the next generation are, are making that change. But I think, yeah, artists can, can really help steer that conversation and are there any contemporary artists or creative practitioners that you follow uh, that have been doing um, environmentally focused work that you feel particularly inspired by and i always get asked that question <laughs> and uh and i always i always i look at so many artists work <laughs> that struggle to pick out somebody um yeah i'm trying to think <laughs> i always like agnes den's work she she always does loads of different uh uh, big public installations that are very, very interesting and, and really sort of challenge uh, uh, preconceptions about the natural world. There's a, another article, Betty Beaumont, that did uh, some underwater installations in the early days, who I was very, uh, very interested in. There's a there's a really great artist called Andre Duprat. He he really fascinates me because he actually puts building materials in in with insects, and then the insects build the sculptures. So he puts precious pressed golden rubies and different materials and insects actually build homes or build little habitats from it which is very interesting that sounds really cool and um are there any great books about the environment climate or nature that have particularly helped you with your work whether on a practical level or theoretical level or perhaps even a storytelling level i haven't read a book for some time (laughs) i've been busy on these projects there's there's a there's a great um marine biologist Callum Callum Roberts um, and he he has some amazing publications which have been really important reads and he's really sums up what's happening with our oceans around the world. So is it through conversation mostly that you gather your resources and and knowledge in order to tackle the different projects that you you said about or is it articles? What what are your go-to resources? I think mostly articles yeah just do a a lot of reading of environmental stories uh, and then, and then in each location I work, I do try to get in contact with a, a marine institution that has marine, local marine biologists that you know talk about the sites and talk about you know some of the issues they're facing because it's not it's not all the same in each place. You know, there's each each local environment has different challenges. And is there, there any particular advice you'd give to people in creative fields who want to use their skill sets to raise awareness for environmental and climate-related causes? 
I think all of it is just it's just about being kind of determined and and resilient. And I think we kind of live in a very sort of instantaneous world where everyone expects results and and it's just a long haul and takes a long time. You know, some some of these projects I've worked on have taken four or five years just to just to get the permits. And I think you have to have that mentality that there's no instant results and it's just a case of slowly eroding and slowly chipping away at a very large stone. And what do you think on a, on a personal level that really created your, your empathy to environmental causes and, and ocean life? What was? Do you remember what it was that sparked it or was there a particular time or experience that sparked your, your empathy towards these causes that you decided that you wanted to commit your work towards helping the environmental cause? I mean, I was just, I was very fortunate when I was young. I lived in Malaysia and I did lots of uh, scuba diving and snorkeling. Uh, and I sort of had that interest from a, from a really young age to, to explore the sea. And that's, that's when, you, when you fall in love with it, is when you, when you immerse yourself in it and, and spend time exploring all the different places. So certainly, yeah. Yeah, interaction. And I also got quite inspired by every place I went. I always talked to local people and they always told me the same thing that, you know, I should have come here 10 years ago and it was amazing. Should have come here 15 years ago and it was this spectacular place and now it's gone. And that's been across the board. You know, I've gone in the Maldives, I was there and so many of the reefs were damaged. In Malaysia, so many of the the coastal systems there have been damaged. So much of the Caribbean has been uh, destroyed by numerous things. And that's just in my short lifespan that that's, that's all happened in, in the space of 20, 30 years. And, and I think, you know, we, we, we can't afford to let that, that happen again. And when it comes to your creative process, has there been any practices that you've instilled into your process to make it as, as sustainable as possible? I know obviously your choice of materials and your sculptures in itself and what they do are do a lot for environmental causes, of course. But when it comes to just the day-to-day, are there any day-to-day practices that you've incorporated in order to just have a, as much of an eco-friendly practice on a day-to-day level as possible? Um, I mean, I, I hate buying new materials. <laughs> I'm really, really conscious of, of, of using anything new because we've already produced so many materials that we sh- I think we should be recycling everything. I do a lot of trying to recycle plastics, uh, re- recycling aggregates. I try to buy as little amount of new materials as possible, but it's still really challenging, especially as a, as a sculptor. Um, you're still making things, and you still need, yeah, you still you still need <laughs> some of the base building blocks. But things are changing, you know. Even so, a, a lot of sculptors use you know resin, and now there's a, a new resin that's just come out that's entirely based on recycled uh, plastic bottles so things are changing but you've really got to search them out and and make sure that you know just accept that you have to pay a slightly higher higher price for that Mm. and um you've spoken about a bit about some of the projects that you have in the pipeline and what are your dream projects that you'd still like to uh, are there any dream projects that you have in mind that you'd like to begin work on that you perhaps haven't yet yeah i'm quite interested in working in the red sea so i have a few sort of potential projects in the red sea at the moment that i'm looking into and that, that's quite exciting because that's one of the the best places i've ever dived i'm very keen on doing projects in uh, in the polar regions i haven't done that before and i and i you know they're they're two two areas of our planet that are changing very rapidly with very big implications so i'd quite like to maybe do something that, that draws attention to that but 
yeah, so I'm I'm really into this this idea of rewilding and re reforesting our oceans, and I really want to find a way of using a lot of the reclaimed materials when we demolish buildings or uh, when we have any excess materials to actually used in the right way that that can produce incredible results underwater. Yeah, they sound sound awesome. I'd love to see the, the projects in the Red Sea. That'd be amazing, and you know all of the projects that you just mentioned. And um, before we wrap our interview up, because I feel like we've covered quite a lot, is there anything that I've missed? Are there any last words you'd like to say to listeners before we wrap up? Are there any questions I should have asked that I didn't? Um, no, I think that's, that's pretty comprehensive. Okay, okay, perfect. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And like I said at the beginning, I'm a big fan of your work, so it was great to learn even more about your work. So thank you for coming onto this podcast and good luck with all of your projects coming up and into the future and i will have an eye out for for your projects for years to come so thanks once again (laughs) i hope you enjoyed this episode of green canvas in two weeks we'll be back with the next episode in the meantime if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on apple podcasts it helps us know what you think and others to find the show and feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.